My name is Jay. If I haven't gotten a chance to introduce myself to you, welcome uh, to what we call our family gathering. John already mentioned that. Um, and we, uh, in our family gathering over the last six weeks, have been going through the book of Job, and we have been talking through some tough stuff. What does it mean, and what does it look like for us to walk with God through some of life's most difficult questions? Um, questions like, why is suffering happening, and how do I endure it, and what comes next, and where is God in the midst of all of this? And, uh, and hopefully uh, this has been helpful to you personally as we've gone through this, um, because as we've said kind of throughout this, this series, God doesn't want to leave you without uh, being equipped to go through these seasons. God has sent his son into the world uh, to cleanse us so that he could actually come and reside in us through his Holy Spirit. And, and the Holy Spirit wants to help us navigate life in such a way that we bring glory to God through the way that we live our life. And, and there is no time and no season in life where we have more opportunity to do that than when we're suffering. That's really the reality. And so God wants us equipped. And I, I, my great hope as we've been going through this is even if you're not going through a season of suffering, you, you've heard from the Spirit as he's revealed kind of the heart of God to you through this, these last six weeks. Because he, he wants you to know more and more and more about who he is so that you can live your life in light of right belief in who he is. And that's regardless of whether or not you're actually facing suffering yourself. But the second thing is that God wants to equip you to be able to equip others. Whatever God blesses you with, he wants to bless others through what he's given you. And that's the whole reason why we're doing the workshop. Uh, next week on the 18th is because we, we, we don't just want us to kind of be a church that listens to a, a sermon and goes, oh, that was great. We learned a whole bunch of stuff. It was great for me. And then we, over time, we either forget it ourselves or we don't really implement it and practice it when other people are suffering in our lives. We want to be the kind of community that is the family of God for one another and those God brings into our midst. And that means that that the equipping doesn't just stop with me. It, it affects you, and it helps you to be a, a help and a source of comfort for others as they go through it. And particularly, as a church, we, we operate most of our life in smaller communities that we call cultivate communities that operate as families of disciples on mission. And that means that we, are, we increasingly want to know how to care for one another and those God has sent to us and those that God has sent us to. And so that means that when, when we do the workshop next week, we, we, we want to help equip you to continue to be good comforters with the gospel for those that are, that are hurting. Uh, because we, that's a value in our community. We want that to be something that we're known for, both with one another and with those even outside of our community. So, so that's the whole purpose of us doing the workshop next week. really encourage you to, to make the time to come out to it. So we're, we're actually in the last week of the series, which some of you are like, hooray, <laughs> we, can, we can move on to other things. Um, and uh, anyway, um, but we're in the last week of the series, which means we're at the end of the book of Job. And what we've seen throughout the book, and really throughout Job's kind of example of what it looks like to go through suffering, is that Job has been wrestling with the loss that he's endured. He has been uh, wrestling with confusion and some anger towards God. He's been arguing his, with his friends. 
He's been crying out to God in prayer. And, and throughout the entire book, Job has basically been after two things. And we've seen these things over and over again. If you've read through the book, you've seen even more examples of them. He's been after two things. One, he wants an explanation for his suffering. He wants to know why. And secondly, and we're going to get to this, and maybe even the most important thing, he doesn't just want an explanation. He wants vindication. He wants to know that he's innocent. And he wants everyone else to know that he's innocent. Particularly his friends who've been saying to him throughout the entire book, hey, look, Job, the reason that you're suffering is because you did something wrong. And Job desperately wants to clear his name. He wants vindication. He wants to know, and he wants everyone to know, that he's innocent, that he didn't deserve this. Um, and because Job has said that he wants these two things, he, here's what he keeps saying throughout the whole book. I want to I appear before God. I want my day in court. I want justice for this. I, I want to meet him face to face and give my arguments to him before his throne. And because you know, if you've read along, that he's said this, there's really only one way the book can end, right? And that's a, a meeting, that, that's a, a face-to-face encounter between Job and the Lord. But it doesn't go the way that Job thinks it's going to go. Job thinks he's going to have his day in court, he's going to be able to say his piece, and that God is going to listen to him and answer all of his questions. But God begins to answer some or ask some, some questions of his own that change the dynamic of the way that Job sees the situation. Ultimately, I end up healing him. So we're going we're gonna to kind of take snippets of the end of the book and kind of mash them together so that you can see the big picture. But we're going to be on page 370 uh, through 373 at the end of the book of Job, if you're following along in our, in our Bibles. So we're going to jump through Job 38, 40, and 42. But this is... So, and I'll... I'll let you know when we get to those transitions. But this is what it says. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. And he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you will answer me. Job 40, verse 8 says this. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor. Clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Job 42, verse 1 through 10, gives us Job's response. Because Job replies to the Lord and says this, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, this is Job's, one of Job's friends, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. And so Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him back twice as much as he had before. And that's the way the book ends. So God shows up at the end. And it's interesting, when God shows up at the end, he, he shows up primarily to reveal some things to Job. Um, we, we might expect that God would show up to crush Job, and, and in fact, it looks a little bit like that's going to happen because he shows up in a storm. But he primarily shows up to reveal some things. And, and if you're in a place of suffering, or if, or if you've been in a place of suffering, um, we've, we've talked about the need for many things. You know, we, we, we have a need for God's presence, we have a need for his glory, we have a need to understand the resurrection, how that frees us from suffering. We have a need to know the wisdom of God. Ultimately, though, all of those things come down to needing one thing. We need God to reveal things to us. We need his revelation. And so God begins to give this little bit of a revelation to to Job. And it's also, in it, are some of the same things that we need to hear if we're in that same kind of season. And so he's going to reveal some things about the nature of suffering, He's going to reveal something about Job in his own heart, and he's going to reveal something very, very important about himself. So let's talk about those things. The first thing that God reveals is what God reveals about suffering itself. Um, One of the things that we haven't talked about, but it always gets talked about whenever you talk about evil and suffering, is something that's an objection that people have called the problem of evil. Let me... Let me frame it and see if you've ever heard it, or maybe even see if you've ever kind of said it to yourself or to other people. It goes something like this. If God is all good and all powerful, then why does evil exist? Do you ever hear this? Either God is good, but not powerful enough to stop evil, or he's powerful enough and could stop evil, but he's not good enough to want to. How many of you have ever heard that? Pretty uh, powerful objection, even today, right? And here actually is the one place in the, in the entire Bible where you get God's own response to that objection. The only place I know of where God himself says, this is my answer to that objection. And he says it, we, we didn't cover these verses already, but this is what he says in, in Job 38, verse 4 to 11. And he's speaking to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels 
shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, I mean, literally, when I said to the oceans, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Isn't that amazing? That's God's response. In other words, to Job, were you even there when I did all these things? And of course the answer to that question is no. None of us were there when God did all of this. And yet it's all there. So he's saying to Job, if you weren't even there when I did this, how can you understand the reasons for which I did all these things? You have, you have a knowledge problem. And this is where he, he comes and, and, and says this clearly in verse 2. He says, Who is this, speaking to Job, that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? You think, well, why is he saying this? Because throughout the book of Job, Job has been saying, God, your plans are dark to me. It doesn't make any sense to me. And what does God say in response to Job's accusations against him? He says, all right, let's see whose knowledge is really dark. Let's compare your knowledge with mine. How much do you really comprehend compared to what I know? Let's compare the two and see what it comes out to. And of course, the answer is it doesn't compare. It's a little bit like my five-year-old um, going to a, rock, a, a, a rocket launch and telling the engineers who designed the rocket, that thing will never fly. I can look at it. I mean, it's just never going to get off the ground. I mean, if you were an engineer that you, you know, and you designed it, how much would you dialogue with that five-year-old to, to try to explain to them what was about to happen? You wouldn't. Because the, the knowledge is too wonderful for them to comprehend. You'd just say, well, let me show you what it does. Have a seat. They're not too close, yeah. See, God's saying to Job, you have, a, you have a major knowledge problem here. Look at the world. Look at what it proves about me. It proves that I know what I'm doing. You think, okay, well, what in the world does this have to do with suffering? The answer is everything. Because if you have a God that is big and powerful enough to be mad at because he's not stopping the suffering, then at the same time you have a God who is big and powerful enough to have reasons for why he allows it that you can't possibly conceive of. Isn't that true? If he's big enough and powerful enough to say, I'm choosing not to stop it, he's big and powerful enough to say, I may have reasons not stopping it that you couldn't possibly imagine. So you can't have it both ways. If you believe in God and say, I can't see any reason why God would allow this to happen, Doesn't, does that mean there can't be a reason just because you can't think of one? Of course not. And yet we do that all the time, right? We do it all the time. It's a little bit like last week when we talked about the sheep and the antiseptic. The sheep have no idea why they're being plunged into a vat of antiseptic. Only the shepherd realizes that it's for their good. That if, they, if he does not do that to the sheep, the sheep will die from parasites and bacteria. 
The sheep don't know. They can't comprehend the reason, and yet they're plunged under. Until such time that the shepherd knows that they'll be cared for. See, God is saying to Job, if I'm, if I'm big enough for you to be mad at, at for not stopping this, then I'm big enough to have reasons that you can't understand. You can't question my plan unless you're on par with my knowledge, and you're not even close, Job. Reminds me, there, there's a great story. I mentioned Elizabeth Elliot last week, and we, we talked about the fact that she was the one that, that um, used this analogy of the sheep and the antiseptic. Um, but her life was a bit of a picture of this. If you ever get a chance to read anything from her, she was a, an amazing author. And I mentioned before that she passed away in June after long battle with dementia. Um, but she, she was a, such a great contribution to the church in America. And uh, if you know anything about her story, she, uh, she was um, widowed twice before the time that she was 48. Her first husband was Jim Elliott, a very famous missionary. Um, and Jim and Elizabeth were uh, on a missionary to, in Ecuador to an unreached people group that never made contact with the outside world, but who were very violent. And in, in their efforts to make contact with them, um, Jim landed a, a small biplane with another man. I forget his name. But they got out of the plane. Oh, thank you. You know the, the, the story well. He, get, he gets out of the plane, and he's speared by those that he was there to help save. Um, and, and Elizabeth, she actually goes on uh, to not only make contact with the same tribe, she goes and lives with the tribe that murdered her husband for two years. Yeah. Um, but she had many experiences in her life that were shattering, earth-shattering. Her second husband died of cancer. There were many points in her life when, when she was um, translating the Bible for, for different groups of people, and the, the translations were, were completely destroyed, and she got set back decades. I mean, she had seasons where it seemed like everything that she had ever worked for was completely wiped away. And one of the things that she did a um, little later on in life is she wrote a novel about a woman who is basically very much the same as her own life story, um, who goes into a tribe of unreached people, who uh, translates the Bible for them, is attempting to reach them, and, and um, the person that she's using to, to um, translate all of this stuff is, uh, is ultimately killed by her. She, gives a, she tries to give uh, a, um, a vaccine to him. It turns out to be bad, and she ends up murdering him un, un, you know, unknowingly. And the tribe kicks her out and throws all of her work in the river. And um, it, it's a book that's called No Graven Image. And uh, towards the end of the book, uh, she, uh, the, the character in the book, uh, says this. She's coming to some conclusions about God. And, uh, and this is one of the things that she says. Now, in the clear light of day, I see that God, if he were merely my assistant, had betrayed me. On the other hand, if he was God, he had freed me. For God is God, and if he is God, he is worthy of of my worship and my service, and I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is, in, is infinitely and immeasurably beyond my largest notion of what he is up to. 
she actually, uh, Elizabeth Elliot, got a lot of flack when this book came out because there were Christians all over the country that said there is no way God would ever allow that to happen to a dedicated Christian servant. God is the God of love. He would never allow that to happen. And what she later uh, said in an interview is that they had no idea that the book was based on her own life. And they, and they obviously had never read the book of Job. See, but the difference is, and, and did you catch this, um, it's, it's either treating God like he's God or it's treating God like he's an assistant. What's an assistant? An assistant is someone who comes alongside you to help you accomplish your will. It's someone that's there for you. And what's interesting is, if you, I mean, think about how crazy it is to treat God like an assistant. Psalm 147 says that God actually determined the number of stars and calls each one by name. Do you know how many stars there are? Our galaxy has up to a trillion stars, and there are 100 billion visible galaxies, and that's only a small fraction of the universe. And yet, this is what Hebrew 1 says. I don't know if you've ever read this before. Hebrews 1, verse 2 and 3 says, In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, that's Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the what? The universe. The Son, this Jesus, sustains all things by the power of his word. Literally at this moment, he is keeping galaxies in motion. Does this sound like the kind of person that you ask into your life to be your assistant? And yet we do it. All the time. See, what Elizabeth Elliot is telling us is our God is too small. Our idea of, of what he's like is too small. And, and when it's too small, when we've reduced God essentially to accomplishing our will, to being about our purposes in life, rather than us being about his will, then we'll never rest. See, if you know that his will is immeasurably beyond even the largest notion of what you could possibly conceive that he's up to, then you can rest because you'll trust that he's actually doing more than what your eyes can see. And so even if it never makes sense to you, even if you go through the rest of your life and you go, I still don't get it. If your God is big enough, you can still rest. You can still have peace. But if you think you know, if you think that God's knowledge is on par with yours, then you'll never rest. You'll always think that you know better, and therefore you'll never have peace. And you won't have peace because you, you won't see the size of God. The only way to have peace and rest is to know that God is bigger than what you could possibly conceive. So that's the first thing. God reveals something about the nature of suffering itself. Secondly, God reveals something about Job which, by the way, is probably a revelation about our own hearts. Because we're all awfully a lot like Job. You notice when God shows up, he never actually says a word about why Job is suffering. We mentioned that before. But God does reveal an answer to a why question. So it's not, why are you suffering? But he does actually start to get at why Job is so upset 
about his suffering, which is a whole different ballgame. See, we would expect that the reason that Job has been really angry with God is over the loss itself, right? I mean, Job has experienced immeasurable loss. I mean, the, the loss of all of his wealth and the loss of all of his children. It's enough to devastate anyone. But it turns out that what Job is most concerned about, what he most wants God to do, is actually not to give him an explanation for the reason why he's lost things. It's to give him vindication that he's innocent. Especially before his friends. That's why God says to Job in in verse 8, Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? See, God is saying to Job, you've been telling your friends that you did nothing to deserve the suffering that you're dealing with, and that's 100% true. But in your crusade to pronounce your own innocence, in your, in your efforts to defend your name, are you willing to discredit me and pronounce me guilty of injustice? And so he says, if you're willing to do that, then let's see just how just you are. Let's see if you're if you're as righteous as the the king of glory, the one who put the world together. And so he he says this to Job in in chapter 40, verse 9. Do you have an arm like God? Are you able to carry out the justice of God, just like God can? And can your voice thunder like his? If it can, then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at those who are proud and bring them low. Look at those who are proud and and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand if you're so able to dole out justice. See, in other words, if you if you understand the way that the world works as well as I do, then carry out the justice. Decide who's deserving of it and who is not, and give out condemnation to those you think deserve it. See, here's the thing about suffering. It, it always reveals the contents of your heart. See, that's why the Bible uses the analogy of pain and suffering and grief and loss being like a fire that refines us. It, 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 because here's what a fire does. It burns away things that can't last. And oftentimes in our lives, we, we build up layer upon layer upon layer of things that we think are who we are. We think this is essential to to my existence as a person, as a human being. And then we go through suffering, and God strips away layer after layer after layer after layer. So what's the suffering revealing about Job? Who is the Job that Job is coming face to face with? And this is the scary thing. It's actually a Job that could handle God taking away his wealth, his health, and even his children. He could handle all those things. You remember when, when, when all that happened to Job, he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You think, that's a crazy response to someone who's lost so much. I mean, how, like, of course he's blameless and upright. Look, how, look at his response to the suffering that he's gone through. But the thing that Job could not handle, God taking away, his functional God and Savior was his name. It was his reputation. 
It was who the community saw Job as that Job could not give up. I mean, remember way back at the beginning of the book, what's the very first thing that's said about Job? Job 1, verse 1, it says this, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. That's the line. I mean, that's a pretty impressive tag, right? I mean, if you could have that on your business card, that's a good one, right? You you would give out your business card a lot if that, and you could back it up, right? See, God is saying to Job, "Would you would you trample my name and reputation if it means keeping you?" That's the real question, right? Would you sacrifice my name to your friends, to your community, if it just means that you get to hold on to the title of blameless and upright? Would you do that? Would you make that trade? That's what he's saying to Job. Now here's the thing. Before we form a pitchfork mob and go to string Job up, you need to know that you and I have made the same exchange thousands upon thousands of times over the course of our lives. We're just as guilty as this man. We're just like him. And here's how I know it's true, because the problem goes all the way back to our first parents. If you remember our first parents being in the the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, having everything that they need for life, being able to live and walk with God in the cool of the day, having relationship with him and having influence over all of creation. It's life at its fullest. It's life the way that God designed it to be. And yet what happens to that? They get tricked into a lie. Essentially, here's the lie. Um, There was a tree, the knowledge of good and evil. God said, don't eat of it because if you do, you'll die. And then they get tempted by Satan to, to look at that tree and ultimately to eat of its fruit. But here. Here's the lie that Satan gave to Adam and Eve. If you eat it, what's going to happen to you? You'll be like God. Which is saying what? What is that saying to to Adam and Eve, ultimately to us? What's the the carrot on the end of that stick that, that tempted us into rebelling against God? How would you frame it? Yeah, pride, self-sufficiency. Essentially, you could be like God, which means you can have a name like God. You can have his reputation. You can garner status and worship from other people, and you can do it all without him. You can have it all, and you don't need the one that created you to do it. That's basically what Job is clinging to by the end, right? He doesn't even care about the explanation before. He just wants to defend himself so well before his friends that his friends at the end of the day will go, you know what, Job? You are blameless and upright. Right. Yeah, because think of what Satan's ultimate purpose is in, in the whole thing of bringing suffering. It's not just to harm Job, it's to discredit Job. It's to say to, about Job, he isn't so blameless and upright. He, you, he's not as good as you think he is, God. Um, and there are, 
there are parts of Satan's argument which are ultimately true. Because Job isn't serving God just for God's sake alone. And, and that gets revealed throughout the book. He's, what Job is clinging to is his status by the end. He wants to be vindicated. He, he wants his name to stand. And Satan knows that. Right? Marlene, what were you going to say? Yeah, they are. <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah, harmful helpers, as I like to call them. Um, it's true, yeah. Because they're, they're, they're not grasping the complexity of what's actually going on and the whole nature of the suffering. They think it's an easy, if you do this, Job, God will do this. He must reply to you. He must respond to you. He must be your assistant. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I I am those people. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways we are, right? And so what's the solution to that? It's a, it's actually to go back to who God is and what he's done that reveals the truth about what's actually happening. It always begins with theology. It ends with theology, right? beyond the basics, do we? It's always about the gospel. It's back to the garden, yeah. Why did Jay bring that up so much in every sermon? It's because it's all related, right? Right, right. Yeah, we've talked about that a couple of times already, too. We have all kinds of information that Job never had. Which, by the way, if we're the ones going through the suffering, there is all kinds of information that we don't have. And we aren't, in fact, intended to have. Because what's God's ultimate purpose through allowing the suffering in Job's life? It's to refine Job, ultimately. It's to make him better, not worse. It's to... It's to show him that God himself is actually the only one to be worshipped and praised regardless of what God is giving Job in return. And so if God revealed all those things to Job and said, hey, I know this has been hard, but the reason that you're going through this is because um, you know, I, I have confidence in you and I'm going to make you into a great man. And thousands of years later in New Jersey, there are going to be people that are talking about your life and example. I mean, think of the greatness that you're going to have later on. You don't even know it. You don't even see it. But what would happen to Job if he knew the reasons for what God was doing? Would he, would he turn into that great man? Would he trust God for God alone, or would he trust God for what God is giving him? He would trust him for what he's giving him, right? So God can't reveal the reasons to Job, though Job wants him to. And by the way, God can't reveal the reasons to us, though we want him to. Because we wouldn't trust him for him alone. We would trust him for the thing that we got from him. Yeah, Dave. 
Yeah, ultimately that's his big aim, right? He doesn't care about Job. He cares about proving God to be a liar. That's what he's always about. Um, but here's the thing about God's declaration. Um, does God, can God declare someone right, uh, righteous and blameless, though they are not? Can God do that? He does, in fact, right? So, different story, but think of Noah. The beginning of, the, of Noah's story, the first thing that we hear about Noah is that God declared him blameless and righteous. And then, and then you look at Noah's life, and he does, yeah, he does a lot of great things. He's, he's good in a lot of ways. But even after the whole flood story, when he, you know, finds dry, dry ground and, and God is, is um, renewing his covenant, what do we find out about Noah? Yeah, he's drunk in a vineyard. Like, <laughs> uh, so was God wrong in his declaration? No, because God gets to declare someone something even though they may not be it. God does that with you, right? He has, yeah. Do we earn that? Do we deserve to be his children? Do we deserve the righteousness of Christ given to us freely? Do we deserve to be called blameless in his sight, holy ones? I don't. And you don't either. See, God has the ability to declare someone something that they're not. That's what, that's what baptism is all about, by the way. And we'll be celebrating that next month. It's, all, it's a naming ceremony. It's not saying, like, this person has earned what we are saying over them. No, you're baptized in the name of the Father. You're his family because God made you so through his perfect son. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. But he makes you so. He declares over you, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Same thing with being disciples of Jesus. We're not great learners. Like, none of, like, we're taking a lifetime to learn what it looks like to walk after Jesus, and we're failing the entire time. And yet Jesus calls us his disciples and his friends. He says, you're my servant. We get to be his missionaries before we even open our mouths to say anything about Jesus. We get the Holy Spirit to help us live a new life and to tell people about Jesus in ways that need his power in order to do so that people come to faith in Christ. Do you have the ability to do that? I don't. I can't change anybody's heart. And I'm not very good at it, even when I do open my mouth. And yet God says, I'm, I've made you my missionary. I've made you my set one. See, God declares who we are apart from what we do. And Job's getting that backwards. He thinks he's upright and blameless based on what his friends think about him rather than what God has declared for him. That's the reason he's so enamored with trying to get them to agree with him the whole time. Because if they would just pronounce, you know what, Job, I think you're right here. Then Job would probably relent if he could just hold on to his declaration. But he forgot that God was the one to declare it. And see, here's the thing. We're so like Job because we do this all the time. We put our stock, we put our identity, we put our hope, we put our status in things that we do for ourselves, or things that have been done to us. And so we say, I'm a good person because I've lived a really moral life. Or I, I'm, I know who I am because I'm a really spiritual person and people respect me. Or I'm, very, I'm really smart 
and other people know how smart I am. Or I'm beautiful, and other people see and are attracted to me. Or I'm funny, or I'm witty, or I'm athletic, or I'm a good parent, or I'm a good provider. I'm all these things. And these things are the things that tell me who I am as a person. See, we cling to those things as substitute statuses. By the way, this happens even in suffering. You think, well, how can it happen in suffering? Everything's taken away. Yes, but even when everything's taken away, we cling to, the, to, to a declaration over ourselves that says, others have done this to me, therefore I am a victim. And we're unwilling to give up that title for what God actually declares over us. He, suffering brings us face to face with the, the real us and with the thing that we most fear losing. It's not that suffering created the problem. It simply reveals the problem. It's like having cracks on a bridge and, and suffering is the 10-ton Mack truck that drives over the bridge and reveals all the cracks that were already there in the first place. And you know, here's how you know that God has put his finger on the heart of the problem with Job. Because what does Job do when God shows up? Is he excited to see God? I mean, even after God says all these things to him, is he like, yeah, 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 I know all that, but let me give my rebuttal to the argument. No, he realizes that he doesn't have a leg to stand on. He has absolutely no case before God. And so he comes undone, and he repents. And here's the key question. If Job is really guilty of the, of the things that we've said, what will God's response be to Job? Will he crush him? And by the way, this is a really applicable point, because if we're all guilty of the same things that Job is guilty of, then we need to understand the answer to that question for ourselves, do we not? Will God crush you, though you are guilty? Though you have sinned, will he, will he turn his face away from you? Will he despise you? Will he destroy you? Of course, the answer is no. Because here's the thing that God reveals at the very end. He reveals something about himself. Probably the most important thing that we need to know is that God shows up, and, and it's, at first it's, it's funny because he shows up as a storm, which is one of the most terrifying things that God could possibly show up as. And, uh, and you might think at first, okay, God's going to crush him. He's going to get him. He's going he's gonna to throw it, all of this back in his face and say, here's what you deserve. And... and it's funny because this is actually what Job expected would happen. But way back in, verse, in, in chapter 9, this is what Job says. It's ironic. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and would multiply my wounds for no reason. See, that's Job's misunderstanding of who God is. And what does God do? He comes as a storm. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a little bit like uh, like Ghostbusters, right? Choose the form of your destruction, and then one of the guys was like, I couldn't help it. I thought of the State Puff Marshmallow Man. And here, here comes the State Puff Marshmallow Man, you know? I got a Ghostbusters reference in there. This is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> 
So he comes, and, and Job thinks he's coming as a destroyer, but instead God is showing up as a storm of love. It's a storm of compassion. It's a storm to, 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 not to crush Job, but to reveal something about the nature of God to Job. Because even God starts this way, and he says, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. I don't know if you realize this, but throughout most of the book, the word that's used most often for God is the word Elohim. It's kind of the generic form uh, to, to express who God is. And yet at the end of the book, it's not Elohim who shows up, but it's Yahweh, which is God's covenant name. It's the, it's the name that God uses to reveal himself to those he's already accepted. It's the name that God uses to reveal himself to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to 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 Moses and to Elijah and the prophets. At the same time, he shows up in the storm, but he, instead of crushing Job, he speaks to Job. He isn't crushing with his power, he's dialoguing with him from the midst of the storm. You think, well, what's the point? God is showing that he's both a God of power as well as a God of love. God shows up to counsel Job, not to crush him. He shows up in his infinite wisdom and power and Job isn't destroyed. You think, well, why not? I mean, if, if Job is guilty, what in the world is saving Job then? Why doesn't the book end with Job being crushed? Well, it's funny because the, the answer to that question is actually verse 8 in chapter 40. The verse that we already looked at. It's a question from God to Job when he says, Would you condemn me to justify yourself? And, of course, the, the answer to that question at the moment is no. Of course not. God will not be condemned because he alone is justified. He has reasons that Job doesn't understand. He is, he's the only one with a name that can last. He's the only judge. And Job needs to both rest in God's will and his justice at that moment. But here's the thing. If you back out, if you look at the whole story of God from the beginning to the end, what do we actually discover in Jesus? We discover that God's ultimate answer to that question, must I be condemned in order for you to be justified? What is the answer? Yes and amen. God must be condemned in order for us to be justified. See, unless Jesus Christ comes, not God in the storm, but God in the flesh, comes and was condemned, then you and I cannot be justified before him. And so he comes and went to the cross dying for our sins and paying the penalty for our rebellion, our trying to justify ourselves, our attempts to keep a name for ourselves, even if it means trampling God's own name. And because of him, because of Jesus, instead of being crushed by the storm of God's wrath, we are justified and saved and given new names that last forever. If you think of how this has to happen, it's pretty amazing. The only way this could possibly happen is if the King of Glory himself, God in the flesh, was willing to have his name, his reputation, trampled upon instead of ours. The only way it could happen. And think about the way that Jesus died. He, he's brought into a court, stripped naked, beaten half to death and then given a cross and he walks through the streets 
of the city that he made as a sufferer and a rejecter. As a political enemy of Rome. And then he's, he's taken to a place and he's mocked over and over again. So you're the king of the Jews. And instead of a crown of glory that's put on his head, he gets a crown of thorn and they mash it into his skull. They put a, a, a purple robe on him and, and pretend to be bowing down at his feet, going, oh, you're the king, you're the king. What's happening? His name is being trampled on. His reputation is being thrown in the mud over and over and over again. People w- would see him outside of the walls of the city, look upon the cross, and turn away because he was too gruesome. Jesus gave up his reputation and his name. Jesus bowed his head into the storm of God's justice and he let it crush him. He was condemned in your place so that now, out of the storm of God's holiness, all that comes for you, if you're in Christ, is the voice of love. It's a new name and a new reputation that you did not earn yourself, but is given to you freely because he purchased it for you. And that, that is your vindication. Who in the world cares what the world thinks about you if you've got that? No title you could ever earn for yourself even compares to that. The one who sustains the universe by the power of his hand loves you and knows you. And and in the end, that's what you need. That's what you need to, to get through suffering. That's what you need to come out the other side. It's him. And who he says you are. Here's the thing about the, the, the declaration that God gives. Not even death can take it away. Right? Not even death. That's why Paul, I mean, one of the things I love about Paul is that he, he gets beaten and, and thrown in jail. and I mean, all these bad things happen to him. He's like, do your worst to me. Because if I live then I get to talk about the one who gave me a new name. And if I die, I get to go and be with him. So whatever you could possibly do to me, it changes nothing about the way that I'll endure. It's amazing, isn't it? See, here's the thing. If if you want that same thing, if you want to actually be able to endure, you need to know what he knew. Which is... One, you don't need an explanation because some of these things are too lofty for us to even understand. God is at work in ways our eyes could never possibly see. But two, God has given us something that could never be taken away. So we're going to celebrate that. That's why we come to the tables to, to celebrate and declare again, this is who we really are. This is Jesus' body given up for us. This is his blood poured out for us. We've been forgiven and cleansed, and he did it better than we ever could. Therefore, we put our hope in him, because he tells us who we are. Ultimately, that's what we need, right? And here's the great thing about Job, is that once he understands that, once he sees God face to face, and God reminds him of these things, he's healed. Instantaneously, in a moment, Job's heart is healed. And you know it's healed, because he he even goes on to forgive his friends. And I, I know this, but 
if you've ever gone through suffering and people have tried to help you and they've harmed you instead, it's really difficult to forgive them. Please do. In Christ, God has given you a wealth of his righteousness and forgiveness. You can give it out with some despair. If you understand. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in you, we are saved by a man who suffered and did not deserve it. We understand that Jesus came and he suffered for us. And it was actually his innocent suffering that saved us. And so now we we ask just by your spirit that you'd remind us of these things so that we could suffer, even if it means suffering innocently. So we do it for you. Help us as we as we and if we are called to suffer, to trust in you, to know that you're actually doing more than we could understand, and that through it we'll actually learn who you are to a greater degree. We'll grow to love you more and depend on your grace more than we do today. Father, we love you. And we want more than anything to grow into what it looks like to be Jesus. We need him to do it. Would you do that in us by your grace and by the power of your spirit?